Ever wondered what powers the world of your favorite superheroes? Dive into Understanding Superhero Comic Books, the definitive guide that unravels the mystery. It plunges into the captivating world of spandex, superpowers, and the masterminds who conceive them. Trace the origins and evolution of superhero comics, fueled by influences from Bela Lugosi's enigmatic charm, Errol Flynn's daring exploits, and the early mesmerizing magicians. Witness Batman, Wonder Woman, Captain America, and more as they navigate societal shifts, reflecting our world within their epic tales. By Alex Grand's Understanding Superhero Comic Books, available now. Ladies and gentlemen, and any dogs or cats that may be listening, it's our Comic Code Authorities, Comic Historians podcast, with yours truly, Bill Field, Alex Grand, and Jim Thompson. Hi, everybody. This week, folks, it's Dateline 1966. Yes, it was almost the summer of love. It was almost a lot of things. But this year was the year of the bat. Why? Because Batman became off-the-hook fantastic. Everybody was talking Batman. Everybody was wearing Batman. Everybody wanted to be Batman, namely Adam West Batman. But not only that, there were also things such as Space Ghost, the Mighty Heroes, the Mighty Marvel Marching Society, just to name a few. So we're going to start off on that, but we want to remind you that 66 was probably arguably one of the most explosive years in comics history. So that's why we've chosen this year to begin our podcast. By we, I mean Alex Grant. How are you, buddy? Hi, everybody. Nice to be here. And Jim Thompson. Jim, how are you, buddy? I'm, I'm terrific. Hi. Hi, guys. So what, I, what I'll do first tonight is go around the table, starting with uh, Jim. And Jim, I'm I'm curious, what is, what do you think is the biggest thing of 1966, superhero-wise? Well, for me, as a six-year-old at the time, there's no question it was Batman. Um, uh, in January of 66, when Batman premiered, that was, that was the thing, one of my, my first cultural moments. Uh, that combined with the, we were into the second year of Lost in Space, and the second year, I believe, of Wild Wild West, this was to form who I was going to be the rest of my life. And I think it's why I gravitated toward comics, because of Batman, and also because of the Marvel superheroes that were on every, every day I was, I was, when I was getting home from school. All this combined hooked me. Um, uh, it was my gateway drug into, into comics. So that by the time I was reading at age eight, I was, I was there. I mean, there was no stopping me. What I wonder is why everybody that age wasn't hooked the way that I was, because it was so powerful at the time, and so uh, Space Ghost, Frankenstein Jr., just as a kid, it just was all-encompassing. That's what I think of 66. And, and you, Alex, what do you think of 1966? You know, I wasn't alive quite yet. I was a piece of ovary in that year. Rub it in, Alex. Rub it in. But I will say, though, that as I was a kid and I was exposed to a lot of the reruns that you can rent or see on TV, 
I realized later that a lot of those reruns came from shows from 1966, and it was kind of interesting that the Spider-Man cartoon and the Batman TV show all kind of generated there, but those did affect me, you know, and also I was watching reruns of uh, Spider-Man and his amazing friends from the early 80s, but, you know, all of that kind of hit me, and that 1966 material was probably two-thirds of the equation. I mean, yeah, I did watch old Lost in Space episodes with my dad as well, so it had an an impact on me. Um, I think at a completely later time. But something about 1966 that Jim touched up upon is the explosion of all this multimedia, TV media activity of things that were generally in comic book form. So with the Batman TV show and uh, Spider-Man and, like you mentioned, Bill, the Mighty Heroes, I think something led up to that explosion where TV executives decided, we're going to do this. And I find that interesting. What what do you guys think? What led up to the Batman TV show? Now, I know that Carmine Infantino started the new look in 1964 and kind of revamped Batman. Do you guys feel that that led up to the 1966 Batman TV show? Quite a bit, but I do believe a lot of the... uh uh, conventions that they used within the TV show were actually from the 50s Batman, the holy this, the holy that. Um, uh, however, the costume had the had the uh, gold uh, gold bat or uh, gold oval with the bat, just like the new look Batman did. So, it, and it's easy to see that they were working very closely with the TV series. The comic company was Na- uh, National Periodicals. Uh, because they really tried to keep canon as much as possible. Although you'll you'll remember they never they only mentioned in test footage that uh, Batman's parents were murdered. They never actually said that on the show. So there are a lot of things that were omitted uh, from the TV show that were canon to the actual Batman comic book series. Now, that's interesting. So that footage that was circulating around YouTube, that was test footage. Huh? That wasn't from an actual episode. Right. And it's it apparently early on when they were doing the test footage, they were going to make it a lot less comical and a lot more of a drama kind of series. That's what I've heard anyway. Jim, have you heard this too? As it evolved, it went more comical. Well, I think the, the performances maybe dictated it too as soon I mean as soon as episode one and you have Frank Gorshin being so over the top crazy it, it, that it, I think it, it, it the formula developed even while they were while they were filming I think it develops into that pretty quickly um, well one of the only deaths that you ever see on the series is on that episode and that's when um, Jill St. John jumps into the uh, radioactive core of the Batcave. I don't know if you remember that. Oh, but I remember it very well. Yeah, and so, but that was very unique because there were not many deaths in the Batman TV series, if I if I remember correctly. They, I mean, there were kidnappings, there were people turning people into monkeys and weird stuff and stamps like the episode with Green Green Hornet, uh, that kind of stuff. But you didn't really have somebody dying. You know, the the worst thing that ever happened was in the movie, which came the season after the first season, you had, um, like, the German chancellor was speaking in Russian, the French ambassador was speaking in, uh, you know, but that's about as weird as they got. That's funny that you mentioned that. Remember, like, those uh, cronies of the Penguin when he was dressed up as 
Commodore Schmidlap, and they used heavy water <laughs> instead of uh, normal water. So when Batman and Robin punched those guys, they vaporized into light or something. Do you remember that? I don't remember that. Yeah, and no. then Batman said, my God, you know, something along the lines of, my God, he, the, those poor men, uh, completely, they're, uh, they're gone uh, forever. You know? And there was something really, <laughs> and there was a bit of mourning. There was a moment of mourning uh, during that. During I, that I actually think that was, that was early in the series. I, I think that no, was that, in the... That, uh, wait, let me think about that. Yeah, maybe you're right. Yeah, I forget. That was the whole thing of reconstituting dehydrated people with water, and that was the whole UN fiasco, right? Right, right, which was actually pretty hilarious. But that was hilarious, yeah. Yeah, and, and, and that scene has been um, often um, uh, parodied as well, because if you, I don't know if you remember, but they parodied that in one of the Naked Gun movies. But it, but it had to do with Saddam Hussein, and it, it was very similar, though, and they were you could tell they were riffing on that whole thing. But so it, it was long-lasting. You know, a lot of the things from Batman were long-lasting in the rest of the media. Yeah, I want to tie one other aspect to it, which was um, the, the, uh, the toys aspect. Uh, Aurora Models was doing a lot at the time with the Universal monsters and with different things. But the, the notion of that Batmobile alongside um, the other iconic uh, automobiles of the, of the period, Beverly Hillbillies uh, truck, the, um, uh, the Munstermobile, uh, the, you know, like there were all of these Black uh, Beauty. iconic vehicles that were so, like, that you, and the, the Batman did it stronger and better than anybody because they had, the Batmobile, the Bat uh, boat, the Bat plane, the Whirly Bat—all of those were things that you would buy and assemble and paint and care about. And it was a tremendous uh, crossover. Um, Not to mention Bat shark repellent. Well, th that too. <laughs> that turned out to be very effective. <laughs> yes, yes, it did. On 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 large rubber sharks, <laughs> not real ones, but large rubber ones. It, it just killed those bastards dead. <laughs> but uh, now you know there is actually one more aspect I wanted to bring in, Bill. Go right ahead. You know, when we were speaking earlier, there was a mention of Bam Pow Pop, that campy, almost comic booky kind of explosion of sound with very simple colors and in a very almost say a very comic booky sort of way. So, you know, how do you guys think of the Batman 1966 show using that as a visual device for the kids, but also then how do you feel about Roy Lichtenstein in some of his pieces from 1966 that have like pop and these kind of pop sounds? How do you guys feel? Is there some relationship between Roy Lichtenstein's pop 1966 and the Batman show with those sound effects? Here's what it is. Here, here's what it is. Okay, Andy Warhol actually did it yes. first. And then, in, in the late 50s, uh, I'll have to get a timeline on this later for us, but he started in the late 50s. Then he went on to something else, and Roy Lichtenstein then kind of latched on to that and actually evolved it into the, lar the, the really refined, large representation of the four-color process. And he used an awful lot of sound and a lot, an awful lot of sound balloons from comics. And that 
was in the early 60s, late 50s, or like probably around 63 to 65. So that was actually used by the producers of Batman. It was almost a reverse thing. The reason you had Biff, Bam, Pow was more as a result of Liechtenstein and Warhol's pop art than it was any other aspect, I think. What do you think, Jim? Yeah, I was going to say the exact same thing about uh, uh, introducing Warhol first and then going to, to what took place after that. Uh, the, the other thing I want to say that's probably my pet peeve is the legacy that that had, because I enjoyed it watching it, but it made lazy journalists for the next, well, up until now, introduce with headlines and with opening paragraphs that Biff, Bath, Bomb, uh, Comics Matter, or Comics Have Grown Up, or whatever. And it's so lazy, and so not what comics are today, and yet that is still the opening lines or the headlines for almost anything about comics. It starts with that bam, boom, whatever. Um, what do you think that, that is? Well, I think it's universal. I think it became so big with the Batman show, and that's so ingrained in everybody's heads. Like, for, Jim Jim and I are a little more than 10 years older than you, Alex, and yet you're just <laughs> as familiar with this. No, no, but I'm saying, but you're just as familiar with this as we are, because even, even in the media that you came up with, they were still overusing all these things, and st- like Jim said, still to this day are. And, uh, you know, but I think it's because it's relatable. And Batman is actually one of the big reasons why we can all relate to comics like we can, because Batman made gave us, like, a jumping-off point, as it were. Yeah, but, Bill, th- these, these headlines are being written by journalists who weren't even born then that may never have watched an episode of that. It's just ingrained in it's it's just a lazy device at this point. No, no, of, it, it it definitely is. What I'm getting at is what I'm trying to say is is that um, the legacy came from Batman, and that's why it's so ingrained. I mean, they may not have seen Batman, but they saw shows that were influenced by Batman, and so I'm saying it was kind of the gift that kept on giving, and still is to this day. But it's also a double-edged sword, like Jim's saying. It's a lazy, uh, you know, example now that everybody kind of overuses. And, but it's the it's the quickest way you can relate comics to people. I but think. it has nothing to do with with comics. I mean, it, today, it, it, right? Today, I mean, the sound effect. Of, I mean, that that fake punch and the and the blocking the actual view of it in a comics code prevention kind of a way, uh, in order to um, to make it look less violent doesn't exist anymore. And we don't have the, I mean, yeah, there's some artists that are really good with sound effects and still like to play with it, but it's not a big part of even action-oriented comics at this point. But they, I think it's it's because, not because of Batman, I think it's because of the headlines from that they're looking at for the last story that they're reframing and they just use it over and over. It's the same thing as writers when talking about television will say, the sitcom is dead, you know, and, and it's like, no, it's always almost dead, and it's always coming back. It's just, it, these are just things that they use. When I was doing a conference, uh, we were setting up a, um, a professor at Duke University and I were setting up a conference, 
And I said, why don't we name it Genre Matters? Because we were teaching it about genre. And she said, why don't we name it Pop Bam Zow Genre Matters? And she looked at my face for one second and said, oh, never mind. I, it's just, it's, I, think it's, <laughs> I think it's insulting to comics to frame it that way. No, I, and, and I, I have to agree. Well, it, it's, it's minimizing it. it. It's not expanding on what comics really have become. You're right. But it's a super segue to the real question. For There's an entire long generation of Batman people who find the show in general to be insulting to comics, that it set comics back, that it wasn't until Tim Burton returned it to more Bob Kane with a little dose of Frank Miller roots that Batman got any credibility back, although then you're ignoring Neil Adams and Denny O'Neill. Um, but Batman harmed comics in a lot of people's views. Alex, what do, you, what do you think? Do you embrace it as only a positive, or do you think it had negative repercussions? I think it was more negative. I have a little bit of a cynical view of some of the more explosive aspects of the Silver Age. I like more the, the metaphysical, like how it culminated into uh, Jim Steranko and Neil Adams and all that. But I would say that when it comes to kind of the pop culture, you know, there are just kind of a lot of things kind of wrong with some of it. And you touched upon, I think, one of the main things is that the Batman show really did, I think, make comics look kind of silly and somewhat dumb. And, you know, some of it has to do with some of those Jack Schiff, Sheldon Moldoff, Batman issues. They were just kind of silly things. So the comics kind of had a little bit of themselves to blame in that construct. But I think it does come down to, you know, Roy Lichtenstein and the executives for the TV show, they created this satirization of what comics are, and by making it very popular and making a lot of money out of it, they also kind of bastardized it and simplified it into something silly. And uh, and, and I think that that actually was bad for, for a while. You know, but it, a lot of it is just a natural progression of how limited superhero comics were allowed to be, or just comics were allowed to be after the comics code, you only have so much you can really put into comics in that in that very rigid time. And I think that Batman 66 show and the silliness of it is is a natural product of, of what the comics code uh, did to comics in the late 50s and, and the 60s. Well, and what and Marvel was digging us out of, because... In, well, in many ways, yes. You're, yeah, but, and you know what's so funny is, is then, in 1977, you had the new adventures of Batman... And the main star of it was Batmite. And it was horrible. The, the only, the only saving grace of that series was it actually featured the voices of, um, Adam West and, um, uh, Burt Ward, uh, as the, uh, dynamic duo. But then you had somebody doing a horribly stupid, bo- hey guys, it's me, Batmite! You know, and I, <laughs> I cringed every time I saw that show. Because by that time I was 14, and I took comics very seriously, and I did not, I I thought it was horrible. Do you remember that show, Jim? Yeah, and I, I know something about this. That's a, a very different uh, mindset and period, because by then, the the programmers for Saturday morning cartoons, and so not the same thing as what Batman was in 66, but... But the, the, the studio executives in the networks wanted to deliberately drive out, uh, demographically 
any adult in the room that might want to watch this. They wanted to drive out any teenagers. They wanted a market share that was shown to be exclusively kids in order to sell for commercial purposes the, the commercials, uh, saying we have a target audience of 99% pure uh, 7-year-olds or 8-year-olds. So, like, they took anything good out of, like, the Flintstones, for example, um, any of the stuff that was interesting about that, they took out. And eventually they stopped you doing the regular shows and did things like Flintstones meet the Shmoo, you know, or Flintstones and Captain Caveman. And it's because they didn't want any carryover for an adult market the way that one used to have with Bugs Bunny or those other things. So putting the Batmite in was to drive you out deliberately. Well, not only that, but you also had abominations like Benji Grimm, the teenage kid who turns into the thing with his thing-changing ring. And that was... was that it came up with the Flintstones. There was the Flintstones meets the thing was actually one of those shows. Flint, no, it was the Flintstones, the Flintstones thing schmoo hour. They, I mean, yeah. that was that was such a... That was such a conglomerated piece of crap, but yet, <laughs> but yet it it won its time slot. It was very popular for a while, and and at the same time they were taking shows that had been live action, not only like Batman, but Saturday morning live action shows like Shazam and Isis, and suddenly they had animated versions of them too, and they were trying to even dumb those down. So yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I think it was that they were trying to drive the uh, toy, toy advertising to, and Kool-Aid advertising. It was all to sell, absolutely. It's, right. Uh, it's been acknowledged. It was to drive people away from watching those shows, except for the target audience. Alex, you're cracking me up. Um, but You guys can't see the video, but Alex often tries to crack Jim and I up while we're doing the uh, podcast, and maybe, maybe we'll have uh, video of that at some point so you can see the – crazy things Alex tries to do to crack this up. And they're almost always like, don't work. I'm kidding, Alex. But, uh, <laughs> but, but you had, you, you know, also like with Space Ghost, you had somebody talented that had been in comics for 20, 30 years at that point, Alex Toth, that was bringing, and, and he also was responsible for Super Friends and the style and look of Super Friends and uh, the Fantastic Four as well cartoon. So you had comic professionals actually working in Gray Morrow. You had comic professionals working on these cartoons. What do you guys think about that? And do you think that that was probably the only reason that they had somewhat decent production values and and kept a look of comics because they were using actual comic professionals to do it? Well, the Spider-Man a cartoon from 66. The first year was Grand Tree Lawrence, but the uh, second and third year, it was Ralph Bakshi's company, and they had Gray Morrow doing layouts for seasons two and three. I think to just reduce the licensing fees of using a lot of Marvel characters, they used a lot of non-Marvel characters for those years, but I would say a lot of the visual dynamic of Spider-Man and his costume and web swinging, that was very well done in a comic visual kinetic sense. And I think Gray Morrow had a lot to do with that. Well, and also Gray Morrow had a lot to do with the filmation uh, 70s shows. Like he, he basically created um, uh, the first two, the first like black couple superheroes 
which were, uh, let me remember now, it was Elastic Man and Micro Woman. And Elastic Man could stretch like Mr. Fantastic and Plastic Man. And then Micro Woman was basically a female version of the Atom and Ant-Man. And they were, they were both drawn very well by Gray Morrow. And it had a higher production value than a lot of the other filmation shows at the time. I don't know if you either one of you remember that, but I digress because I keep going back to 77, 78 for some reason. No, that's cool, though. It's nice to have that background, though, on Gray Morrow's career and how there's more to it than just comic books. That's great. I, I also think Alex Toth is like an entirely, like, he is a revolutionary on that, that front, the way that Kirby is at Marvel at that time. Toth is a tremendous influence and he's also bringing in other people as well. But when you look at Toast Designs, um, they're just, they stay with me as much as um, Ditko's villains in, in the first couple years of Spider-Man. They are, they're iconic. Um, and Space Ghost is one of the, obviously one of the best designed um, um, pop culture hero types of, uh, I can think of. But for me, it was the Hercules place. They were incredible because of the diversity and the right and, and right. The, the weird perversion of you know and, they, they I was fascinated by those characters. Well, and and I'm not sure if Toth went on record as this or if I've read it or, but Toth was really impressed by the work of Steve Ditko early on, and you can see an awful lot of Steve Ditko in the Herculoids, if you ask me. Oh because, yeah, absolutely. You know, and, and you can also. Yeah, and you also see a lot of Ditko and Birdman as well, especially in the villains. And, and he he would he would completely just rip off a character like Craven. And there was a hunter character that looked exactly like Craven, you know, except he didn't wear he wore more like a jungle outfit than a lion head, you know. But he, I mean, they they had no problem ripping off things left and right. Hanna Barbera was especially responsible for these kind of things, shenanigans, but Filmation also followed in kind, you know, although Filmation was doing more licensing than Hanna-Barbera was. Hanna-Barbera was trying to come out with more of their own shows, although they did license Fantastic Four and uh, Josie and the Pussycats, but Filmation was doing all the Archie shows. They were doing all the DC comic shows, even the live-action stuff, for the most part, until... Hanna-Barbera got the license to do Super Friends in 73, and they started doing more of that themselves. It, but you had, like, Ruby Spears then, who was a spinoff from Hanna-Barbera, so to speak. Do you remember the Superman show from the late 80s that was uh, designed by Gil Kane? I've been watching since I was that age, though. Uh, I was probably 10. But now that you've mentioned Gil Kane's name, I'm definitely going to go back and look at it again. No, I, I would say that just given it's Dateline 66, if we go back to there, we have to remember a lot of these shows, Saturday morning cartoon really wasn't the concept that it became just a few years later. I, the Beatles cartoon, um, when that runs on Saturday morning, it really opens it up and it becomes something that they're targeting. I mean, it's there, but not not as pronounced. And a lot of these shows were were uh, conceived as as uh, nighttime shows based upon the tremendous success of the early seasons of the Flintstones. And the one that I, because we're talking about Toth, 
the one I want to um, uh, mention is, is Johnny Quest looked better than almost anything out there. Yeah. And that had a tremendous Ditko influence, too. If you think about that, uh, that robot eye with the, uh, uh, that, that, that goes in the opening credits, um, it looks just like the monsters from uh, the robot monsters from the Spider-Man comics. Oh, absolutely. And not only that, but uh, Doug Wildey was also yes. a comic artist during this period. And so I think, I think anybody had to be impressed or it had an impression made by the Ditko stuff. And the Kirby stuff as well. Don't get me wrong. Kirby was very, very impressive back then. But the utter odd and weirdness of a lot of the stuff Toth did was absolutely Ditko as far as I'm concerned. Didn't Toth bring in Wildy on Johnny Quest, or was it, or was it the opposite? I know one of them recommended the other to 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 run with it to some degree. I, I think it was. I believe, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, I believe they both worked on um, Space Angel together, which was. Early on, it was uh, one of the one of the series that used the human lips, the Cinco Vox or something like that. The same thing as Crash Cargo or uh, Clutch Cargo, sorry. And uh, they worked together. He brought, if I'm not mistaken, I'm going to have to look this up after the show. But if I'm not mistaken, Toth brought Wildy in, and then Wildy turned around and brought Toth in uh, after the success of Johnny Qua- or. During the success of Johnny Quest, Toth actually worked on Johnny Quest with uh, with him. And but then Hanna Barbera saw how great Toth was, and they used Toth like crazy after that for almost yeah. for almost all their super shows. And, and and one more thing that I want to bring up that I didn't say earlier is: Do you remember that uh, a big turning point because of the superheroes and everything in that era and Batman becoming big? You had September of 66 when the season started. Uh, CBS, uh, every year they would name their season something else. Like in 67 it was Cartoon Universe, not Cartoon Universe, something like like Cartoon Universe or something. And in 66 it was Super Saturday. CBS is yeah. Super Saturday. And almost everything on CBS's Saturday morning was superheroes. And that was because of Fred Silverman. Yeah. Fred Silverman saw what was becoming a big craze, and so he pushed all of, all of CBS's Saturday morning cartoons because they had Underdog. I believe that was CBS that year. It, it went back and forth. Uh, they had Underdog. They had Mighty Heroes. They had oh, – Yeah, but you know what? They, the ads that you're talking about didn't include Mighty Heroes in them because I went and looked, and I was really surprised. Uh, you know, because they didn't have their own show, they were just part of at that time. They were just part of the um, the Mighty Mouse Hour. Oh, it wasn't until '67 that they actually called it the Mighty Heroes Mighty Mouse. Yeah, you're right. Right. You're right. For that, the one you're talking about, they were actually omitted from that. Yeah, but but you did have um, you did have the Lone Ranger and Superman starting in '66 as well. The animated yeah. series. So the, the first the, that was the first uh, animated TV Superman, right? Yes, it was. Yeah, it, it, and it was the it was the first time in I believe seven years or wait, when did Super, Adventures of Superman go off the air? Sixty? 
So it would have been the first time in six years that you'd had new Superman programming when that happened. And when did when did Aquaman was was he did he precede Superman or he was around that time too, right? I believe it was the I believe it was the Aquaman Superman hour the first year, if I'm not mistaken. And then the second year they also included Batman, but I can't remember how they how they framed it or what they and, called it. And I go back to the toys again because do you remember the, the Captain Action toys? where you would have Captain Action, but you had the, the additional outfits that you could address, you could put uh, him and his sidekick into, which included uh, um, um, an Aquaman outfit. Uh, and and, Spider, and Spider-Man, Captain America, Superman, yep. Batman, and Robin, Aqualad, and uh, other, like, sidekick kind of costumes. So, yeah, and, and that was the beginning of the action figure Boon, because G.I. Joe had started it, but then they took Captain Action and transferred it to the superhero craze. You had superheroes. I went through more than one Aquaman. I remember that that costume was 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 it for me. More than certainly more than Superman was. Well, you know, I remember when the Mego characters, uh, the Mego figures came out in the early seventies. The two that I I just had to have right off the bat was I had to have Captain Marvel and I had to have Aquaman. And I'm not sure why, but I always like I always thought those characters were the coolest. But so I'm with you on Aquaman. I for some reason I really thought Aquaman was fantastic as a young kid. And and I think that T V series had a lot to do with it. Something I do want to say about Captain Action is that it wasn't just superheroes. They had sci-fi and radio show characters. Like they had the Green Hornet and they had Buck Rogers. Comic strip. Comic strip. Yeah, Flash Gordon. And they had comic strips. I mean, they even had Steve Canyon, the Milton Kniff news strip that he made uh, after he left Terry and the Pirates. He, they even had a Steve Canyon uh, Captain Action figure. So Captain Action came out in 66. That's very significant. I think it rides the wave of the superhero craze of 1966, absolutely. Because you've got that Aurora model of Captain Action, too, that that just that looks like, like, a, like Wally Wood popping out of the page. Um, and I and and then so you've got that, and then the crossover. And here's a comic that has nothing to do with any of the superheroes that we know, but it's so gorgeous looking. And it, I tie it to the model and to the toys and to everything. And it was just this this convergence that they were starting to really develop. I think for the first time to that the degree that they were doing it. And yet, Captain Action obviously fails as a comic completely. Right, and and the and Captain Action as a toy line only lasted a couple of years as well. It, it basically, once you had space toys coming out, the superhero stuff took a backseat to the space stuff until we hit the moon, and then everybody lost complete uh, attention to the space stuff, so they went back to superheroes. So the the toy business is real fickle, especially back then. You know, you didn't have you didn't have brands that lasted forever that were ex- exactly evergreen back then. And so we are going to go ahead and bring to an end this part of our discussion this week. And I want to thank you guys for all the wonderful things that you're bringing up because it brought back some of the fun and ex- excitement and the flavor of 1966. Next up, folks, our weekly end of the show rants where you get to hear 
myself, Alex, and Jim reflect on the things that really uh, popped up at, at them this week in the interest of comics. Okay, folks, time for the weekly rant. And we're going to start this week with Jim. Jim Thompson, you have two minutes. Go. I just, it's not really a rant as much as a recommendation. Um, There's so many comics out there from the 1980s um, by publishers like Eclipse and and, um, Aardvark, Van Heim, uh, and on and on, and first, and things that are not out there available uh, because of, of various legal battles or because of natural disasters that flooded their their uh, their warehouses. And there's so such good stuff that is lost that people are not reading, and it's so different from anything today. So I, I just want to name drop a couple. Um, they just released through a Kickstarter program. Uh, Trina Robbins' um, uh, serialization of Sax Romer's Dope. And it is so incredibly wrong, racist-wise and everything else, and it's so perfect and reflective of the time and the, and the material. And it's, it's beautifully done, uh, beautifully lettered, beautifully inked. It's, it's, a, it's a wonderful piece, and I had not seen a full version of it um, uh, ever. Um, I think I actually missed at the time one or two issues. I also just ordered Puma Blues, another Dave Sim uh, produced um, a book from Anaheim that was done by uh, Michael uh, Zuli uh, on art. And it starts at one place as just sort of nature drawings and becomes just the most bizarre science fiction, interesting epic way ahead of its time. I strongly recommend that. Those are just a couple, but there's such a gold mine in that 1983-84, right through the uh, end of that decade, before the bottom falls out and it becomes image and superheroes. That's it for me. Okay, now we will move on to Alex. Alex, what do you have to rant about this week? I'm excited about 1966 as a broad topic in general. Uh, There's a lot of different things that happened there um, that we kind of glossed over and went a little more in detail Batman TV show, obviously. The Dell comics turned their monsters into superheroes that year. Myron Fast started his own superhero comic line with his own kind of failed Captain Marvel and the Bat. In Marvel ends of things, that was also the year of Galactus's first appearance. So what's interesting about that is Jack Kirby and Stanley taking comics almost to a whole other serious sci-fi level, and I think by doing that, in the midst of all the almost staying true to their mission rather than cheapen up what they were doing, they guided comics to the cinematic approach that everyone else was essentially ignoring and caught up in the cheaper pop culture, and I'm excited about talking about that as well. I think that there's a lot of aspects in 1966, and it's exciting to go over that. Okay, and that leaves it to me, and the Bill Field rant of the week. Now, what I want to talk about is this week, Marvel came out with a bombshell saying that all of the things that have happened in the last few years in Marvel Comics are about to be undone and put back the way they were. In other words, we're going to have yet another rebirth, another new universe, another bunch of crap, because people just can't use the characters right these days. They want to reinvent the wheel all the time, And, you know, this week, Thor is a girl. Next week, Spider-Man's gay. The week after that, the Fantastic Four, the Fantastic Eight, and they're all villains. You know, and I'm just tired of this junk. 
I wish we could get back to the wonderful things that we had in 66 where people stuck to a storyline and you waited until a 20-year period to change the character. I'm, I'm tired of this every six months. We have to have a new rebirth of Batman, Superman, the Fantastic Four, or fill in the blank. I just wish we could go back to long periods of great stories and not have to worry about every three to four years what the company is going to do to try to reinvent the wheel and reinvent themselves and make them more, you know, important to comic fans. And that's my rant for the week. So and I, I'm just going to say one thing, which is, Bill, you're probably still mad when um, when Thor and Iron Man and Giant Man left the Avengers and put in that upstart Hawkeye and Scarlet Witch and Quicksilver. So there you go. D- damn it! What is their problem? Why couldn't we keep the original five guys? Why isn't Ant Man still Ant Man? The anti uh, the anti Gypsy crowd were really upset when Scarlet Witch joined. I remember that. Just kidding. oh yeah. They were pissed. You weren't even born yet, Alex. Okay. Well, with that, folks, we want to thank you for joining us here at the Comic Historian Podcast. And I want to thank, as usual, my cohorts in crime, Alex Grant. Bye, everybody. And Jim Thompson. Bye, guys. 